Evening to you all. How is the sound in the back? Okay, great. So what'd you think about the pumpkins? So it's an interesting thing for this environment where nobody is talking to you. I hope you can feel the, uh, the meta and the caring that's present in the silence. It's a lot of work to do those, although people really enjoy doing it. It's a little bit of a Santa's workshop in the staff dining room for <laughs> about a week <laughs> with all sorts of tools in there. So did you have a chance to uh, look at them all? Maybe you found your representation somewhere in them. It's kind of tantric, you know. Yeah, we have all the way from very elevated um, beings like the Buddha himself sitting here in some form to, you know, more familiar uh, dukkha-ridden, hindrance-ridden versions. <laughs> so you may find a match for your mood of the the evening. You know, this is a was a very big day of the year for in uh, Celtic cultures. This was the most sacred day of the year, and the harvest was being completed. And what people used to do would be. Uh, to clean their houses and then they would leave out a glass of whiskey at night for uh, uh, dead relatives that might come to visit. So I don't know if this was like, you know, the glass of milk the parents might leave out for Santa (laughs) and then it would be empty in the morning, but I have a feeling certain relatives more than others would be likely to come and partake of (laughs) the festivities. So, a holy day in any case. So we beings here on earth, ah, well, we have a lot to work with, don't we? (laughs) A lot to work with. So some of you may have had the experience when you were getting ready to go on this retreat or another retreat of talking about what you were going to be doing for a period of time, whether that's three months or six weeks. And people have all different kinds of reactions to, to the idea of you disappearing for that period of time. And um, sometimes uh, people say to you things like, Oh, it'll be so great just to relax and rest. <laughs> you know, or they'll say something like, Oh, you know, it, it, it sounds so wonderful, you know, so, so peaceful. Well, you've all been here long enough to know that it's a little more complicated than that. Um, Little do, do they know what it's like to actually sit down and watch your, your mind for three months or, or six weeks. 
But it's a lovely wish and fantasy. (laughs) And it might even trick them into trying it themselves sometime, (laughs) which wouldn't be a bad thing. But for us, even though we uh, wish we existed in a dimension where things were always pleasant, were always easeful, would be always to our tastes and preferences, that's really not the way it is here. So this seems to be a rather binary place in certain kinds of ways. And a lot of what we experience, whether on retreat or not on retreat, is the experience of things that we don't like, things that we don't prefer. And the Buddha talked about this often, very often. In uh, one sutta, the Laka V. Pati Sutta, he talks about what he calls the eight worldly winds that are always blowing. This uh, oscillation that we experience as human beings between gain and loss, status and uh, censure, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. And while we wish we could just hold on to one end of those dualities and just stay with the upside, we can't but we really want to, we really would wish to. But we come to know through retreat that things arise because of causes and conditions. And when the causes and conditions are there for something to be present, then it's present. And when the causes and conditions change, then it disappears and is replaced by some other conditioned experience. So we don't have reliable control over what arises. It's not like we could say, for instance, even on Halloween, sadness be gone and it would be gone for good. We just don't have that span of control. So this feature of reality, this oscillation between what we find uh, to our tastes and what we don't, what we like, what we don't like, is part of what led the Buddha to start his explanation of his path by talking about what's called the first noble truth, which is the truth of dukkha. And the first noble truth has a lot of different dimensions and is worthy of a talk in and of itself, but one aspect of it points to the unstable nature of and often unfulfilling nature of immediate experience. The word dukkha itself being translated in a number of different ways in English as things like suffering or stress or unsatisfactoriness, an acknowledgement that some or much or all of what we experience as human beings isn't really to our liking isn't subject to our control and direction. So even when we get things that we do like, we don't have the capacity, for instance, to say, okay, this is it, this is the way it's gonna be from now on out. And you've probably noticed that for yourself in practice. You know, you may have uh, a period of practice where you know, it feels like it's coming together and it's, it's going, you know, good. <laughs> which usually uh, 
we take to mean uh, low on hindrances and uh, physical discomfort. And we can kind of swell with confidence with this idea, okay, I've, I've got it now, okay, I got, I've got the formula. You know, you have that experience yet? Yeah, I've got the formula. It's like you start to almost like look forward to that next sitting, you know. You go back in the hall, you sit down, you arrange yourself, you know, the way you arranged yourself last time because you don't want to mess with the formula. You know, you want to you wanna reduce the variables. You know, you sit down and you start the same way that you started the last time and you have a completely different experience. Yep, anybody have that happen? (laughs) So, it's a surprise package what you get on retreat. So, the Buddha says this uh, surprise uh, package nature of things, this lack of uh, control that we have in relationship to what we experience, and the fact that we inevitably experience the downside of the eight worldly winds, we inevitably experience the instability of uh, impermanent conditioned things, is an issue, is an issue for us. Because we all wish to suffer less, to be happier, to be wiser. But it's confusing to try to figure out exactly how that's possible. Given that I just said that everything that arises, arises due to causes and conditions that we, generally speaking, can contribute to, but we don't control. There are many factors um, involved in what we experience and our if you want to say volitional, real-time contribution is only part of that and generally doesn't govern what happens next. So it's unstable. And so sometimes we can have this feeling almost of being bombarded in a certain kind of way by these changes, by these oscillations. And it can cause the mind to move into a state of resistance to what it's experiencing a state of kind of bracing or a state of attempting to manipulate or a state of rejecting immediate experience. And the the problem or the difficulty with that is that the bracing, the trying to control, the trying to get away from and all the rest of that doesn't actually have the effect that we would want it to have. Instead, it actually has the effect of causing additional suffering So, the Buddha says that we can actually increase our happiness and move in the direction of more well-being if we develop skill at working with our own hearts and minds in real time, regardless of what we're experiencing, whether we're on the upside of the eight worldly winds or not. And this process of learning how to work directly with our heart and mind, regardless of conditions, in the interest of developing more capacity, more strength of mind, 
more joy, less suffering. This is what is called bhavana. So in the Buddhist teachings on the eight worldly winds, he basically says that people who are, quote, uninstructed, run-of-the-mill people, and people who are, quote, well-instructed disciples of the noble ones, have exactly the same range of experiences. He says, for instance, for an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person, there arises gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, and pain. And for a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, there is also gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, and pain. So what's the difference? What's the distinction? What distinguishing factor is there between the well-instructed disciple and the uninstructed person? So the Buddha puts that question to people he's teaching. And then, as is the case in many of these suttas, the the disciples say, well, tell us, tell us, tell us. (laughs) Please, blessed one, explicate this point. So he says, well, when gain arises for an uninstructed person, that person doesn't reflect, gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He does not discern it as it actually is. In other words, when you're on the upside and experiencing gain, the mind does not recognize that this shares the three universal characteristics, right? It's, it's impermanent. It's not going to be there forever. So the uninstructed person doesn't recognize the temporariness and conditioned nature of gain. And then the Buddha says, loss arises, status arises, disgrace arises, censure arises, praise, pleasure arises. And in all these cases, he does not reflect, pain has arisen for me, it's inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He does not discern it as it actually is. He doesn't see the, the uninstructed person doesn't see the impermanence of this downside experience of pain. And and the next thing the Buddha says is interesting. He says, this person's mind remains consumed with the gain, meaning it's hanging on to this idea of somehow getting back the upside. His mind remains consumed with the loss. It hangs on to this experience of the downside with the status, with disgrace and censure and praise, his mind remains consumed with the pain. He welcomes the arisen gain and rebels against the arisen loss. And then he goes through all the dualities and says the same thing about them. Some are welcomed, some are rebelled against. And as he is thus engaged in welcoming and rebelling, he is not released. He is not released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. So the mind is engaging with a kind of preferential struggle to hang on to what it likes and to not experience what it doesn't like. But both of these things are conditionally present, so the mind actually doesn't have 
the span of control to be able to do either one of those things successfully. And yet it's agitated by this effort, and the effort itself is struggle. So now the Buddha, of course, brings forward the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones. So this one says, he reflects, gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to, to change. He discerns it as it actually is. Loss arises, status arises, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, pain. He reflects, pain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He discerns it as it actually is. And his mind does not remain consumed with the gain, does not remain consumed with the loss. His mind does not remain consumed. He does not welcome the arisen gain or rebel against the arisen loss. He is released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. So the mind has learned to relate to these two kinds of arising experiences with the same wisdom, not grasping on to the ones that are pleasant and are seen as, as desirable and not rejecting or pushing away the ones that are not pleasant, that are not sought. There's an evenness here that's born of wisdom where instead of engaging in this futile struggle to control what's happening, the being is actually able just to be present there with what's happening without that reactionary echo happening in relationship to what's immediately present. And the Buddha says, because of that, the mind is not struggling with its experience. It is, it is free. It is not suffering. So there's another teaching similar to this that also has advice. And this is the teaching on uh, the first and second arrow. So the sutta is sometimes translated as the arrow or the dart. I don't know, personally, arrow seems like bigger. (laughs) Dart doesn't sound good, but, you know, arrow sounds very formidable. But take whichever idea you want. So here, the Buddha really uh, zeroes in on this question of Vedna or feeling tone of experience and how it can influence what the mind does dependent on which Vedic quality is perceived. So pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So the Buddha says, an untaught worldling experiences pleasant feelings, he experiences painful ones, and he experiences neutral ones. Likewise, a well-taught noble disciple experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral. Now, what is the distinction, the the diversity, the difference that arises here in between a well-taught noble disciple and an untaught worldling? 
So this is a version of this, the question in the last one, right? What's the difference? They ha- they're having the same immediate experience. Things that are pleasant, things that are unpleasant, things that are neutral. Both of these people, trained and untrained, they get this range. So the Buddha says, well, if an untaught worldling is touched by a painful bodily feeling, he worries and grieves, he laments, he beats his breast, weeps, and is distraught. Thus he experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. Meaning there's the physical experience which he uh, perceives or knows as painful. And then there's what the mind does when it perceives or experiences pain. He says, it's like a man was pierced by a dart and following the first piercing is hit by a second. So that person will experience feelings caused by two darts. And with an untaught worldling, when touched by a painful bodily feeling, he worries and grieves, laments, beats his breast, weeps, and is distraught. So he experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. And then he says, having been touched by that painful feeling, he resists and resents it. Then in him who so resists and resents that painful feeling, an underlying tendency of resistance comes to underlie the mind. Then under the impact of that painful feeling, he proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. And why does he do so? Because an untrained person does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sense pleasures. And he goes on about how that strengthens a tendency in the mind towards lust. So he's basically describing the addictive cycle, right? Some, there's a painful experience. The mind can't deal with it. The mind doesn't like it. It goes into a state. And then its next move is to like, whoa, let me see if I can find something. You know, let me, let me get something that, that would uh, feel good and cover over this experience so I don't have to feel it anymore. So, you know, there are many different versions of this. So he's, he, and the Buddha goes on to say, and just to clarify, sense pleasure is not bad. It's not what's being said. But he's saying, uh, beings who take this approach as their exclusive option don't understand that there are limitations to what sense pleasures can do for you. And there are dangers in taking this route too because it leads to the mind seeking the easy way all the time. And as I just mentioned in the case of addiction, that doesn't necessarily move you in the direction of liberation. So the Buddha says, you know, such a being when he experiences a pleasant feeling, a painful one or a neutral one, he feels as one fettered by it. He is fettered by suffering, this I declare. So in a certain kind of way, this experience of bodily suffering puts this person in a a box of limited options because the mind is not trained to deal with this in any other way other than trying to get away from it distress and trying to suffering and trying to get away with from it so he says but in the case of a noble well-taught disciple 
He will not worry nor grieve nor lament or beat his breast and weep, nor will he be distraught. It's one kind of feeling he experiences, a bodily one, but not a mental feeling. It's as if a man were pierced by a dart but was not hit by a second dart. This person experiences feelings caused by the single dart only. When touched by a painful feeling, he will not worry or grieve or lament, will not beat his breast. He experiences a single feeling. In other words, there's no follow-on echo of further distress. He doesn't resist it and resent it. So the Buddha says, you know, that this person has overcome the mind's ignorant tendency to want to slap sense pleasure on top of the mental distress that's caused by uh, physical discomfort. And he is not fettered to suffering. This I declare. So you see, through both of these teachings, the Buddha is really juxtaposing this idea of the untaught worldling with a well-taught noble disciple, or in another translation, it's uh, um, a run-of-the-mill, uninstructed person with a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones. So this is a contrast between two ends of the developmental scale. So, you know, on first hearing this, you might think, ooh, that's kind of harsh, you know, it's kind of, that's very hierarchical, you know. There's like the, the good ones and the bad ones. But that's really not what's being said, because if you understand the Buddha's teaching, then you would understand that he, he teaches in part because he understands that humans have developmental capacity. So even though... You know, we all come in as uninstructed worldlings. Upon hearing the teachings and practicing the teachings, it's really possible to go from, you know, that um, base level of just responding organically to pleasure and pain and gain and loss and all the rest of it in the very uh, basic um, mammalian way that we're probably set up to do to being able to find other ways to frame experience and hold it and relate to it that begins to cut through this uh, conditioned falling into what I sometimes call discretionary human suffering. This follow-on echo reaction when we uh, are confronted with an experience at one or more of the sense doors that's painful and difficult. So this whole process of moving from, you know, the baseline of not knowing how to relate to things, not understanding how to interpret them, not knowing how to hold them, to a level of mastery in relationship to um, the full range of human experience is the path of the Buddha's teaching. And it's contained in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So, you know, whatever our current capacity is, we can move towards more freedom, more wisdom, and more compassion. And you can see here the significance of the phrase that's used in these suttas about the well-instructed noble disciple, which really tells you that there are things to learn. 
So the Buddhist teachings help us to reframe whatever our original naive interpretation has been of how things are and how we get in right or wise relationship to them. And our Vipassana practice is that very process of learning evenness of mind in relationship to all of what we might experience. So, on retreat, we experience painful and pleasant and difficult things, whether they're thoughts or emotions or body sensations. And these here on retreat become part of the field of practice. So even though our organic inclination might be, oh, well, practice is going uh, well when there's, you know, it's pleasant and it feels kind of easy. And if it's difficult or choppy or there are a lot of hindrances, it's going bad or it's, you know, going sideways. That's really uh, an incorrect interpretation. So... Whether we experience one or two arrows, it really depends, you know? Right on the spot, sometimes it might be possible to experience in a way that leaves things at, right at the one arrow level. Or we may experience things in a way where the difficulty seemingly compounds after the initial sense contact or the initial experience. So, you know, which way it goes depends on a few things. One is the matchup between our meditative resources and the various dimensions of the experience we find difficult. And the, another uh, part of the axis is how, how we make effort. How, how we are making effort to meet this. So, you know, on retreat, you definitely can have two arrow experiences if you want to put it that way, right? And probably most people here have had them at one point or another, if not on this retreat, where the mind might be completely reactive to pain and difficulty and become completely lost in the state. So, you know, resistance and reactivity com- can compound and the hindrances can really come uh, become strong. And if there's a major mismatch between the level of mindfulness and the challenge, then there's suffering. And there just is. Um, lots of second arrows are flying around. And it, it's tough to learn in that kind of state. But fortunately, ultimately, it will release at some point and pass away. And then there may be the possibility of some retrospective perspective that's useful. So it's not unusual, you know, to have students come into the practice meetings, especially if they're, you know, on the roller coaster. You know what I mean by the roller coaster? They're having a lot of big, stormy, uh, difficult things happening, as they do at certain stages of practice. And talk about these, these things that happen where they're just like, you know, they wind up feeling like they've been just like totally blown over. Like, you know, they can't, they can't remember the practice rules. They can't find mindfulness. You know, they're kind of like in this big storm and it just like you picked them up like a tornado and sort of whirled them around at a certain point. It dumped them out. 
Unfortunately, you know, then they had a meeting with the teacher <laughs> or they signed up with Devin or, or something and, you know, uh, tried to process what it was all about. And, you know, often these, uh, this process of review and coaching with a teacher can help strengthen the meditation tools and uh, clarify the perspective. So there's more context for a future arising which might be similar. And at the very least, what the teacher can do is point to this as an example of dukkha and the uncontrollability of phenomenon and that we're really not in charge of what we experience. In other words, to frame it for the student of, well, you've just had an experience of the first noble truth. This is what, (laughs) this is part of what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, dukkha. Now, sometimes there are experiences that arise that are, are more like a one arrow kind of situation where there might be significant difficulty, it might be unpleasant, there might be pain, but the mind is open and clear and equanimous and allowing. And so even though things might be challenging in terms of being able to remain present, the mind is able to be skillfully present because at that time there was strength of mindfulness and other wholesome factors. So in this case, there's just the thing and a wise relationship to it. So a bit of freedom from the the kind of follow-on reactivity. And there's really nothing more to do when it's like that. So things might still be painful, but there's not any big suffering going on. So this is when the mind is in a sweet spot where there's uh, an experience of the third noble truth, a mind that for that moment at least, for that, that experience is released from suffering and is not chained into that causal pattern of resisting and resenting but is just there and has enough equanimity to kind of come into some kind of equipoise in relationship to what's happening. So in respect here, a teacher could point out to the student what was in place, seemingly was in place, that supported the arising of that particular experience, which can be helpful to the student in terms of helping them see the causation, what exactly was present and skillful in meeting what was there. So those are, those are two, the two ends, right? The two extremes. One where there's two arrows and you get totally wiped out. And the other end where there's one arrow and the mind is being really good and there's no follow-on suffering. But the most common scenario, the most common version of this is what you might call one and a half arrows. (laughs) So you can add all this to your your next new reporting structure, you know, how many arrows? If somebody comes in and says they have three arrows, that's really when we're going to call retreat support, but 
But, okay, so the third situation is a circumstance in, that has great practice potential in it because this is where one might, for instance, be experiencing a painful thought, emotion, body sensation, and there is both reactivity to this and some level of mindfulness present. So the mind is present enough that it sees this happening. It sees the the first thing that happened that's unwanted or painful or difficult. And then it sees the mind go into a reactive pattern. But it's seeing it. So there's awareness present. So some examples of this. Back pain and you don't want it. Right? You're aware that the back is doing certain things and then you're aware that the, the mind is like, ah, ah. <laughs> okay, angry and can't drop it. You know, you know you're pissed. You know you're irritated, you're annoyed. You might even know it's an uh, unwholesome state and it's a state of suffering. But every, every time you try to you know, redirect or something, it's still there. It's still there. It won't, it won't, de- uh, it is not subject to your control. It's not subject to your wishes. Or in a, another example of this uh, is thought cycles that condition emotion, that condition body states. So, you know, I don't know why he did that. He really shouldn't have done that. That's just like him to do that. It's so inconsiderate. He never learns anything. I don't know why he does that. Well, I do know why he does that. It's because he's kind of blah, 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 blah. And the er- emotion of frustration arises or the desire to you know, change this person. And then the feeling of frustration arises and then the body sensations that go with a feeling of frustration, irritation, and annoyance are present. Right? So you're seeing one un- unpleasant, initial unpleasant thing condition the arising of another unpleasant thing, conditioning the arising of another unpleasant thing. So you've got a little dukkha chain going on there. So when it's like this, then the question may come up in your mind like, why should I include this in my practice? You know, shouldn't I just like, you know, go back to the breath or, you know, try to like steer away from this, this little hot mess that's getting underway in the mind. So the question, you know, why should I include it? Well, it's because it's there, right? If this is the primary, if this is the foreground experience that you're having now and you've got some mindfulness, Deal with it. So as to the question, why should I engage this? Well, because this is actually the doorway to more wisdom and less suffering. So this is the path where uh, the semi-instructed, half-noble disciple (laughs) learns and develops their practice chops. It's right there, right in that, you're right in the zone. So then the question is, well, how can I include this in my practice in a way that builds wisdom and compassion and capability and minimizes suffering? So that's always, always the question, or that's always the frame 
for these mid-range kinds of experiences that are challenging and difficult, but there is some mindfulness there. It's like, how do, how do, what's the wise relationship with this? How do I, how do I work with this? How can I be present uh, with this in a way that sustains uh, mindfulness, that actually allows me to do some exploration of this particular state? So I will give you some general advice on working with uh, painful and difficult stuff. And then uh, perhaps tomorrow morning in our Q&A, I'll give you a little bit more specificity about working with painful or difficult physical states in particular. Because there's a big range of of potential material in this um, area. But to get back to the piece about general advice for working with painful and difficult states... So a first thing is common sense is encouraged. Common sense is encouraged. Um, There's a broad overlap between common sense and sampajana. People know that word, sampajana. It's an aspect of mindfulness that uh, has one element um, that's talked about in terms of uh, clear comprehension or suitability. So an example would be knee pain that lingers after the sitting is over and is getting worse every day. Okay, That is a situation, for instance, where the skillful or wise thing to do is to find another way to sit. <coughs> right? It's not to take the knee pain as an object, right? Com- common sense, right? So, and this applies to life in general too. You know, sometimes people have this idea that um, if you learn to meditate, if you uh, learn how to practice, you know, if you're uh, you're a good Buddhist, that when you're out in your daily life, that means you become uh, a passive, all accepting blob that has no discernment and is incapable of, you know, calling BS or taking action or, you know, making things happen in the world, that you just become kind of flatlined. Okay, flatlined is not equanimity. (laughs) Flatlined is not equanimity. And in fact, if you're uh, engaging in this... um, process of of bhavana um, in a a balanced, uh, skillful way, you actually become more discerning. That's the wisdom piece. More discerning about what's appropriate and when action is required and needs to be taken or should be taken. Not accepting in the way that leaves things uncorrected that need to be changed. So common sense is is encouraged. So a second piece about working with painful and difficult stuff is matching the challenge to the resources. So consider the strength of the pain and difficulty and your present resources. Are they they matched? So the Buddha talks about uh, people practicing in their range. 
So consider the circumstance, for instance, of being in a fitness program at a gym where you're doing weightlifting. How do you know how much weight to use? Yeah, you might want get to the point where you want to be able to, I don't know, bench press 100 pounds or something. But if in your efforts to bench press 15 pounds, you're very challenged, then it would be an unwise thing to try to bench press 100 pounds, especially if you <laughs> don't have a spotter, right? It's just not close enough. It's not close enough to be developmental. It's too, it's too extreme a leap given the present resources. But if the challenge present is within the range of your resources, or maybe even a little bit out of range, because we're talking about this as a developmental process, even if it's out of your range, but you've got resources and you feel some confidence and some faith and uh, you're willing, willing to, you know, uh, swallow a little water, practice with it directly and unwaveringly. That's how you build strength and competence. To, to go past your current baseline. So in cases where there's a mismatch between the challenge and the resources that you have, this is where, you know, you need to be realistic and truthful about what you're actually experiencing. So, for instance, if... Um, you're way out of balance, you're getting you know, a lot of traumatic kind of stuff and your mindfulness battery is weak. It's more skillful to interrupt and redirect attention to an easier meditation object or in some cases to just discontinue and, uh, for a while and go for a regular kind of walk. And that's because the resources aren't available to meet what is happening head-on and sustain mindfulness. So the key thing here with all of this is sustaining mindfulness because mindfulness is, is the protection for any of this difficulty. So in that kind of case, it would be better to pick another focus of attention to make the task of being present in a balanced way. So you would pick an easier uh, kind of object something different, or uh, maybe you kind of do the touch-and-go strategy where you open to something difficult for a little while, and then before you get, uh, you know, pulled under or washed over or, you know, uh, however you want to characterize it, you close and redirect. So you just brush, or you keep something kind of in the background. Somebody was talking today about something being kind of like in the rear view mirror. It's kind of hanging around there, but the focus isn't on that. So you can build strength and competency in that kind of way, as well as confidence in meeting these really strong states, including some states uh, that might be sources of uh, great suffering in your life. They can gradually... Hear this, hear this qualifier. 
they can be gradually deconstructed. But only if the, if the mind has a feeling of enough safety and enough resources when it touches them in a very graduated kind of way when they're present. So this is a whole area where you really want the advice of your teacher and you want to listen to what they tell you. So let's talk a little bit now about practicing with uh, what's painful and difficult in general. So I've just talked about this whole issue of match of resources with degree of the challenge and the different permutations about that and how to know what's wise. But let's talk about just painful and uh, difficult and general kinds of things and how one might go about practicing with that. So a first thing to do is to explicitly notice and acknowledge the Vedana, the feeling tone that's there. Because this is a very important point. You know, if you know the teachings of dependent origination, then you can appreciate the fact that it's the arising of Vedana, which is not uh, met with presence of mindfulness at the point of its arising, that sets off the whole chain reaction of reactivity, right? We know that when something pleasant arises, if there's no mindfulness there, then the mind is conditioned, uh, unless it's learned otherwise, to go into grasping, into liking, relishing, preferring, trying to hold on, all the things that the the Buddha talked about in the two suttas I read you. And when unpleasantness arises in the mind and the mind does not uh, perceive that, it tends to go into a kind of automatized uh, unpleasantness uh, dislike. Get it away from me, I don't like it. Trying to run away from it, some some more aggressive kind of aversion, attacking it, um, trying trying to get rid of it that way. So acknowledgement of Vedana in difficult circumstances is really important. That should be an early thing that you do. Oh, this is unpleasant. It would usually be unpleasant, but not always, which is interesting. So another thing, another major point is noting can be really helpful in working with painful stuff. So how many people here feel like they have a strong competency in this technique of noting? Put your hands up. Don't be modest. Okay, so that's maybe maybe 20% if that. So what that sec- suggests to me for the consideration of the teaching group is whether we should give you folks a tutorial because it's a really uh, useful tool, especially with difficult stuff. So just to put it in uh, a brief summation, this is the use of the mind's capacity for perception. Perception is one of the mental factors, right? Perception is the mind's ability to recognize 
based on past experience, what something is. So it's almost a, it's what allows us to say, okay, that's a floor, that's the color orange, that's, you know, a being, a being, that's a plant. You know, the mind uh, upon um, uh, receiving certain information very quickly goes to its mental file drawer and comes up with the, the name, the identity of what's being uh, known. So when you use noting, you use the naming of what you're experiencing in real time. And it helps you connect with what you're experiencing in real time. And strong perception, which is necessary in order to actually note, is a condition for the arising of strong mindfulness. So using this particular technique has the effect of strengthening mindfulness right there, right there in the moment of working with this difficult stuff. So it's calling in some reserves. So it has a very salutary effect. So Vedana, noting, and then a next thing uh, to do, and this is true not just in difficult and painful circumstances, but includes them, is to identify your uh, primary or predominant experience, meaning exactly what's happening that you find painful or difficult in real time. So it could, this could be like a broad kind of thing. Is it a thought? Is it an emotion? Is it a body sensation? You know, sometimes it can feel like a lot of different things are happening at the same time. But sometimes one seems to be in the foreground. And you might be able to note it, name it, note it. Sometimes there just might be a sense of there's a lot of stuff going on, in which case you might even be able to note it as lots of stuff, or not sure. So... A next thing to do would be to turn the mind towards whatever is most visible and most identifiable. So I said, you know, identify the predominant experience and actually turn the, turn the mind towards that. Center the mind on that experience. And then um, a next step would be to remember rain or as Greg was saying it last night, rain, right? He was talking about the three. <laughs> he was playing around with others. You could use three different uh, words for every one of those initials. Recognize, accept, or allow, um, investigate, or interest, uh, non-identification. That's a coaching in the attitude of mind towards this experience that you're now having, which you've centered uh, in the field of your attention. So that's a reminder to turn to the experience with a kind of soft and interested mind. So not a command and control mind. If there is a command and control mind, that's a-okay, that's arising on its own too, but you want to see that. Oh, wanting to control. So, you know, sometimes with these things that are difficult or painful, especially if they, they're things that have been with us for a long time, you know, are part of a, a conditioned, ingrained pattern, we can sometimes uh, 
approach them with like hostility and kind of aggression like I've had uh, you know a lot of people say some version of this about a particular psycho-emotional physical pattern that that they've seen that you know they came on retreat because they decided that you know once and for all they were going to like turn their mind into this stuff and they were going to get into it and they were going to vanquish it and they were going to... Well, the whole first part of this talk was about the limitations of our span of control, was it not? So can you see why that uh, uh, approach might (laughs) lead to a a certain amount of uh, trouble? Because if we could get rid of it just by, you know, assertion, it would be gone. It would be gone. So the most, one of the more interesting things about this whole process is these things open, they yield, they uh, uh, reduce in their suffering, they unbind, they, they yield to kindness. They yield when they can trust the mind that's touching them. Which means metta and compassion and kindness and interest and patience and allowing. Which is totally different from what we might imagine, right? Where we kind of have like the surgical model in mind, like, you know, you go and get an operation and, you know, Somebody removes it, or you remove it, but it's not like that. So, another point. Painful thoughts can be tricky, especially when you're identified with them. So if it's kind of that mental dukkha that's supported by thought, a good thing to do is actually to check to see what emotions are present, what emotions are present, and to work with the emotions directly, to name the emotions. Frustration, anger, grief, disappointment, doubt, fear. Oh, the thoughts, the thoughts have, the content of the thoughts carry an emotion often when they're repetitive. And then, of course, strong emotions can be tricky to work with if they're unsupported, right? To just have like a strong emotional state going on, it's kind of like kind of hard to get your arms around it sometimes, right? When it's like a big, strong, emotional mushroom cloud of stuff. It's like, yeah, you might know that you're angry, but like, then what? It's like anger, 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 stronger, 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 stronger. Okay, this is uh, an example where uh, working with body states and sensations can be really useful because any strong emotion has a resonance in the body. It's a body-mind state. And body states, when they're present, you know you're in real time with those, right? Because that's the only place clearly that body sensations happen. It's always a present tense, right? So what is the anger? It 
Is it fire? Is it clenching? Is it tightness in the jaw? Is it a lot of energy? Is it like impulse to jump up out of your chair and go throw big stones in the pond? I mean, what is it? What's going on with the body? Then you can watch the body sensations in real time. So you can see how you can step it down, starting with all these thoughts, 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 thoughts. What is the emotion with the thoughts? Oh, it's anger, 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 anger. Okay, well, what are the body sensations with the anger? Oh, it's tightness, heat, contraction, energy. Okay, now you're grounded. Now you're there in the body. You're in real time with things that are happening, moving around, getting stronger, getting weaker, turning into something else. You're not like lost in the cloud of of unknowing in the dukkha thoughts. So then you're capable of seeing how the experience changes as you attend to it. Because none of these things are steady state. They're all changing, changeable, changing. And, you know, a last point is just notice when the experience weakens and passes away. And note it as you're doing your noting. Weakening, weakening, passing away, passing away. And this reminds you of the upside of impermanence. (laughs) Right? Because just in the same way you can't hold on to what's pleasant, what you enjoy, can't hold on to the gain, you also see that the painful, the difficult, is also impermanent. And when you see that enough times, the mind starts to grow in confidence of its ability to actually meet difficulty. Because you know, no matter what it's, what it's like, that there's an end to it. Because you've coached the mind to notice the weakening and the unbinding and the ending of these particular kinds of states. So, you may not be here on retreat getting quite the great place to relax and rest that your friends and family might think that you were heading towards, but there's a lot to be developed, there's a lot to be gained. And the human potential is incredible. You know, you may feel on the cushion sometimes that, you know, you're like trying to do spear catching or something, you know, with some of the stuff that comes up. (laughs) But, you know, to have come into contact with the teachings of the Buddha, to be, have been given the tools and an environment where you can practice using the tools that can move you from you know, this state that we're born into as the uninstructed worldling where we're naive to causation but we organically react to uh, the unpleasant and painful um, in a way that sometimes uh, deepens both of those experiences 
to move from that state of unknowing to having the capacity to hold a different frame to understand much more deeply about where we actually have leverage, where we have influence, where we have uh, the possibility of growth is incredible. So this is your experience here. You know, even though sometimes it might feel, you know, like it's shrunk down to the moment of, I don't want oatmeal again for breakfast. There's something much more uh, expansive uh, and important going on here for you as you, you sit and walk hour after hour after hour after hour in silence. So you can, you can trust what uh, we might call the fruitful silence and all the meta silent meta that that surrounds you that holds the space so i think that's enough for now may the practice that we've done here together in offering and listening to this exposition of the Dharma be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.